All right, let's take our Bibles in, church family. Let's head from Matthew chapter 16 in the New Testament this morning. Matthew chapter 16. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Grab that little note page from your bulletin as well. And I'm especially glad to have this note page in case we do lose power. Um, We're going to still be able to stay right on stride. I do want to say thanks to Rob for uh, stepping in and covering the pulpit the last two mornings, uh, especially when he got into chapter 3, verses 18 to 22 last week. I really didn't throw him to the wolves. He wanted that. Um, I was willing to move and, and go in another direction, but he said, no, nah, let me have that. So, uh, and I understand he did a great job with it. So, yep, thank you, Rob, for that. All right, so church family, today we begin to make our, our really our official run-up toward what is really the most cherished of seasons as Christians, as devoted followers of the Lord Jesus, that, of course, being the celebration of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The Christmas season is a special, and it is a much-anticipated time for all Christians, to be sure. But Jesus' coming at Christmas, as we celebrated at that time, means nothing to us if our crucified Savior does not rise triumphantly and burst out of that grave declaring victory over sin, death, and hell. Amen? A Christmas coming without an Easter rising is a tragic story of defeat. But Christmas with the resurrection, why, that's the greatest and truest story of all time, isn't it? That's, that's, That's a glorious hallelujah. And that is where we're going to be heading two Sundays from now and the week leading up to that with Good Friday service. We're heading in those directions. So today we're we're really breaking from our our study series in 1 Peter and we begin to turn toward the cross and toward the empty tomb today. And Matthew chapter 16 is going to help us begin to do that. And by the way, I hope that you are already praying about and thinking about who you might want to invite to share Easter time, Easter celebration with you. Maybe maybe a friend that will never come to a church building on a Sunday morning, but maybe they will come with you out to Inspiration Point and share the service there. And, and then maybe you can just nudge them to say, hey, there's other great things happening. Let's go back to the church. Let's have breakfast together. And, uh, and then they would share service with you. Someone that you know needs to know that the risen Jesus can change their eternity. Somebody you know needs to know that. So be praying for who that might be that you could invite to join you on that day. All right, Matthew chapter 16. We're going to focus our attention on verses 21 to 23 this morning, but allow me to to help us get a running start at that little section by backing up to verse 13. If you'll follow along in your Bible, we'll put this up on the screen for you as well. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, why do people say that the son of who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And we'll stop right there. Let's pray, church family, before we step into this moment. And Heavenly Father, how we thank you for preserving your word for us. Not just the the glorious shining moments, but also the really hard, difficult moments. And uh, the honesty that comes with your word today. We're so grateful for that. There are lessons for us waiting in this moment. And your spirit must be the one who teaches us today and brings your word to life and into the light. And I, I would just be honored, Lord, if you'd allow me to be your voice for your people's sake today. Um, I, I don't want to get in the way. So it's yours to, to take this passage and draw from it the things that you want for us. May we be doers of your word and not merely hearers only. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. The story is told of a, of a naval warship that had recently returned from tour overseas. While on that tour, a young officer had consistently stood out, showing himself to be not only responsible, but incredibly efficient. Because of this, he was given a rare opportunity. He was allowed to take command of the ship as it made its way out of the port for a new tour. And so this officer gave a series of crisp commands, and before long, he had the deck just buzzing with activity. The ship maneuvered cleanly away from the dock. It set its course out of the channel. The young officer's efficiency was nothing short of remarkable. In fact, the deckhands began to proudly acknowledge that, that he had set a new record for getting a destroyer out of port. The officer glowed with pride when... Not to his surprise, a seaman approached him with a printed message from the captain. And this is what it read. My personal congratulations upon completing this exercise. Everything was done by the book and with amazing speed. In your haste, however, you have overlooked the most important rule of seamanship. Make sure the captain is on the ship when you leave the dock. <laughs> now, did that young officer intentionally leave his captain on the dock? No, of course he did not. It's the last thing in the world that he would have wanted to, to intentionally do. But he had become so caught up with his own agenda, what he, what he needed to do, what he, what he wanted to see happen, so caught up with his own plans that his captain became an afterthought rather than his first thought, right? It happens, doesn't it? It happens. 
It happened to this well-intentioned young officer. It happens to a disciple by the name of Peter today here in Matthew 16. And brothers and sisters, this can happen to you and to me. Do we ever get out in front of our God? Does that ever happen to you? It was never our intention to do that, to, to leave our Lord on the dock, figuratively speaking, to try and lead our Lord rather than to be led by him. But it happened. We got out in front of God. We had our agenda. We envisioned and desired an outcome to some situation or circumstance that we found ourselves in. We were convinced in our own mind, in our own heart, that we knew what was best, what the right thing to do was. We, we knew what we wanted. We knew where we wanted to go. We had a plan. And whatever didn't fall in line with our plan needed to fall in line with our plan. And so focused did we become that the Lord, who really is our captain, became an afterthought rather than our first thought. We've all been there. We've just admitted it. We have all been there. In fact, you might actually even be there in this moment. And if that is true for you, if you are sensing by the nudging of the Spirit of God that maybe you're out in front of Him, then perhaps this morning is a divine appointment between you and your captain. And if we aren't in that place, the risk of venturing into this place is always present, right? We never are very far from the potential for this to happen. Life will surely bring to us those moments where we will want to say, but God, this is not what I had planned. And so Peter finds himself right here. And while I'm sorry for what Peter is going to experience in this painful learning moment with Jesus, I am very grateful that the Holy Spirit preserved this moment through Matthew's pen because it gives us a chance to to really to learn from Peter and maybe not do what he did in the same way. Church family, a look at your, your note page will reveal no less than three timeless truths that, that we can take away from this this moment in Matthew from the day when Peter's plans did not line up with his Lord's plans and Jesus had to forcefully reel back in one of his dearest friends, one of his most devoted followers. And and if we can just remember now what Peter forgets to remember, maybe we can spare ourselves, maybe we can spare others, maybe we can spare our Lord some unnecessary heartache. That's my prayer. So let's spend a few moments with these truths and may our Lord burn them into our hearts today. In the run-up to verses 21 to 23, remember now where Jesus is and what he and his disciples are doing. They're up north in a place called Caesarea Philippi and and they're just taking sort of a, a deep breath after a very intense time of ministry down in the, the region of Galilee. And so in a quiet moment, as they're just kind of on vacation, Jesus asks his disciples a probing question. Who do people think I am? The disciples offer up a number of different answers from from what they've overheard as people talk about Jesus. And then Jesus turns this question on them. 
And, and you, guys, who do you think that I am? It's the most important question in the universe, isn't it? That really is the most important question in the universe. And one that every person has to answer, either in this life or as they stand before the living God. They have to answer this question. Eventually, we all do. So Peter steps forward, and he speaks for all 12 of the disciples, giving the only right answer that there is to the question. Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. That's the word that he uses. Mashiach, the long-awaited, the promised son of the living God. You are God in the flesh. You are God with us. And it was the answer that Jesus was longing to hear. The one answer more than any other that he needed to hear. His, his disciples get it. They, they really do get it. They know who he really is. And this is confirmed by what Jesus says in verse 17. Right answer, Peter. Right answer. Blessing be on you for your answer. And Peter, I'll tell you what I'm going to do with the truth that you've just declared, that I am God in human flesh. I'm going to build my church on that forever foundation. It was an incredible moment for Jesus and for Peter and for the other disciples one that they're never going to forget. Jesus, you are deity. You are the Christ. You're the anointed son of God in a, in a body. And of course, Jesus' church and Idlewild Bible Church rest on this unshakable foundation of truth, don't we? Our church is built on this truth that Jesus Christ is God. And then we come to verse 21. And a very definite turning point in Matthew's narrative. The tone, you, the, the tone literally changes in this gospel right here. His, Jesus' focus changes here. You've heard the expression, there's, there's a change in the wind. Well, it happens right here. Beginning with verse 21, Jesus' attention and his focus is going to change up until now, he has poured his efforts primarily into presenting himself to the Jewish people as their Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, proving to them that he really is God in the flesh by performing hundreds and hundreds of extraordinary miracles. And now that his disciples get this, get who he really is, his focus shifts, and he will start concentrating more and more on preparing himself and preparing them for what it means to be Messiah, what it means to him. It won't be long, and Jesus will turn his face towards Jerusalem where the horrors of the cross wait for him. From here on, Matthew's gospel has a very different feel. And verse 21 is the point of transition. And we can feel this as we read verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So important is this new shift of focus to Jesus that he'll repeat these exact same words in chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, again in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. He wants his disciples to know the plan. 
In verse 21, as Jesus shares the plan for the very first time, and we, we, we get these three timeless truths that kind of just pour out of this little three-verse section of 21 to 23. And the first of these three truths, as you see it there on your note page, is this one. God's plans will often be different than what? Our plans. <laughs> Would you agree? <laughs> oh, man. If that's not a timeless truth, I don't know which one is. Verse 21 makes absolutely no sense to Peter, though, right? It makes no sense. By divine inspiration, he has just said in verse 17, you're God, Jesus. You're God. And Jesus says, Peter, you're right. I am God. And I'm going to build my church on that truth. But then immediately Jesus says, and let me tell you what being God in the flesh actually means for me and what it means for you. Let me share with you the plan, the plan that has been in the making from before the earth's foundations were even laid. Let me tell you why I came. And Jesus starts talking about impending suffering and rejection and about his death. And it just does not make any sense to Peter at all. It's not what he had planned. For Jesus or for himself, God's plans will often be different than our plans. And church family, we better just get used to this being the way it is. Because to, to not get used to this truth is to fight against a mountain of scripture that says this is the way it is. For example... There's a number of passages here. I was wondering if you would, wouldn't mind just reading these aloud with me right off the screen. We have them on your note page, but would you be game to do that with me? Let's just read these right off together as a church family. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Let's do it. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's plans are going to often be different than our plans. Yeah, how about Psalm 92.5? How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Very deep, right? And then how about Job 11? Let's go there. Job 11, verses 7 and 8. Let's read it together. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths of the grave. What can you know? Kind of makes you feel small, doesn't it? And then how about Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and 34? This is such a beautiful passage. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And we say amen and amen. The sheer weight of these passages and many, many more just like them tell us that there will be lots and lots of times in our lives when we will not grasp what God is up to. What he's doing with us, with others that we love, what he's doing in our world, we're not going to get it. 
When Jesus shares the divine plan in verse 21, it all rests on a single word in verse 21. The word must. You might want to circle that word, highlight it in your Bible, because that is a really important word here. In other words, this this plan is not up for a vote. It's not a proposal that Jesus is kicking around with his disciples while he's on vacation just to kind of get a feel for how they're going to go with this. This is not that. The, The word must means binding in nature. No alternative, no plan B. This is it. This has always been the plan, and it will continue to be the only plan. Notice the four musts that Jesus stresses here in verse 21. He must first do what? Go to Jerusalem. I must go to Jerusalem. Jesus saw this as necessary for him to go to this city where God had first declared that sacrifice and atonement for sin were to be offered. And you can trace that all the way back as early as Genesis chapter 22, Abraham and Isaac on on Mount Moriah, right there, same place. Go all the way back there. So here Jesus must offer himself as our sin sacrifice. In fact, when, when Jesus leaves Caesarea Philippi, he will begin a steady march to the south and he'll end up in Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem from this moment on. And by the way, that word Jerusalem, that word means foundation of peace. And so here's Jesus. He's going he's gonna to make peace between sinful mankind and a holy God on a cross in the city of peace. Makes perfect sense. I must go there. Second, Jesus says, I must suffer. He knew that he was going to suffer rejection and ridicule and multiple beatings and mock trials and excruciating anguish and and public shame and the unspeakable torture of the cross. None of that's going to take Jesus by surprise. He must suffer. He says. And third, he must be killed. This would have been the hardest part for Peter, wouldn't it? He would carry out the divine plan by giving up his own life as the only acceptable payment price for sin. Sin brings death, and only a sinless death could atone for sin. Jesus says, I must be killed. And and by the way, the Greek word for killed here is not the word for a legal judicial execution. There was another word for that. This is the word that means murder. Jesus says to all of those guys there that day, I must be murdered. That's what he says. And then I must rise again after three days. And we say, amen to that. Without a resurrection, there can be no salvation. If death and the grave could hold Jesus, then death wins. The grave and Satan shout victory. And so, so Jesus says, I must, I must rise from the dead. The four musts of Jesus, without which you and I would still be right now dead in sin and separated from God. This is the plan. It's the only plan. But Peter can't see this. Jesus' plan makes absolutely no sense to him. The Messiah that he envisioned takes the throne in Jerusalem by force if necessary. 
overthrows Rome's tyrannical rule, and restores Israel to her former glory. That's the plan that Peter has in mind. Jesus says, no, these are the things that must happen, what I just told you. And Peter says, but that doesn't fit into my plan. Truth number one, God's plans will often be different than our plans. Now, if if Peter had wrapped his head and heart around that truth, that first truth, he might have stayed out of verse 22, where Matthew tells us that after Jesus shares what is ahead for him, And for them, Peter took Jesus aside and began to what? What? Rebuke him. Is that, are we really reading that? Yeah, we really are. And and this word rebuke is actually in in a verb tense that indicates that he repeatedly does this. This wasn't just a one time kind of a deal. He repeats, he verbalizes in a number of different ways his opposition to the plan. He actually says, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And he keeps repeating this in in different ways. And so picture in your mind's eye Jesus pouring out plainly the divine plan and Peter having just said, Jesus, you are God in our midst. And now Peter motions to Jesus to come over to him, his Lord, his captain, his master, the one who is in charge, and he motions to him, puts his arm around his shoulder and says, come with me. You and I need to talk. And and he's really speaking for everybody here in the circle as well. And he says, I don't think so. I don't think your plan's a good plan. This shall never happen to you. Underline the word never because that's where Peter put his emphasis. Peter uses, in fact, the strongest possible voice of negation in the Greek language in this moment. It's just like our phrase, over my dead body. That's exactly what Peter was saying in the culture of his day. In essence, Peter says, I hear what you said, Jesus. I know this is what you think you need to do, but there's just no way that I'm going to let that happen to you. This is not my plan for you. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a gracious God we have when you watch this moment unfold this is extraordinary the creature tells the creator that his plan his eternal plan is the wrong plan and that it's off the table and there is a new plan and the creator needs to get on board with the new plan Fellow Christian, when we find ourselves in in a verse 21 moment that we did not see coming, we need all the help we can get not to step into verse 22. And so if you flip your study page over, we get our second practical truth. On your note page, good intentions can never justify a wrong response, right? I mean, when Peter tries to correct his Lord, we can just hear the passion in his voice. 
Far be it from you, Lord. He loves Jesus so much and he believes in him so much, but he honestly believes that Jesus' thinking is all wrong. He believes that that this to, to really to the core of his being. He wants what he believes is best for Jesus and for everybody else. Only in this moment, his good intention is a million miles away from Jesus' own intentional heart. He responds wrongly in a way that results in Jesus delivering the most powerful and pointed rebuke that he ever gives to any of his followers. I never want to be in Peter's sandals in a moment like this, do you? I don't want to be there. I know you don't. So when we discover that that God's plan is different than our plan, what are we going to do with that, brothers and sisters? Well, on your page are some practical suggestions. Four, actually, that again might keep us from making a verse 22 mistake. So first there on your page, when confronted with God's plan, what should we do? Hey, that's rocket science, isn't it? (laughs) Let's just go with it. Because that's really the smart thing to do. Boy, how easy is it to say and how hard is that to do, though? Oh, my goodness. And it's hard to do because it requires two things from us. They must happen if we're going to go this direction. It's going to require great humility and it's going to require great faith. Those two things. Our old sin nature consistently struggles with both of these, humility and faith. Check out there on on your page. There's a couple of verses that point us in the right direction. Interestingly, the first of these verses comes from none other than the pen of who? Peter. 1 Peter 5, 6. We haven't gotten there in our study yet of the book of 1 Peter, but we're going to. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, church family, I wonder where Peter might have gleaned that truth humility says i don't get it lord i don't get it but you do i can't see it lord but you can i i I don't understand lord but you do i'm at a loss but you're not i'm afraid but you're not I'm powerless, but you're not. Humility. It bows down low and lets God be God. It lets Jesus be Jesus. It lets the Holy Spirit lead even when nothing's making sense. Humility. Which connects to that second verse there. When God sends his angel to Mary, you remember this moment? And he tells her that she is a virgin and that she's going to bear the Son of God. Not only is that not in Mary's plan, that was an absolute impossibility. That, I mean, virgins don't have babies. But this had always been part of God's plan. And so, with extraordinary faith, Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's it. That's it. 
I am the, the Lord's servant. In other words, I don't understand, and I don't have to understand as long as you understand, Lord. Oh, may that be our heart. May that be our heart when our plans and God's plans don't mesh. Second practical suggestion, when confused by God's plan, ask questions. Don't make declarations. Peter missed this one too, didn't he? How do you suppose verse 22 might have read if Peter had gotten this this second point after Jesus shares his four musts? What if he had said, instead of what he says, Lord, teach me, instruct me, open my eyes, replace my dull understanding with your wisdom because honestly, I'm just not getting it. I'm not getting it. I thought we were we were going this way and you say that, that we're going that way and, and my way seems better than your way. Will you please help me to understand your way? Wouldn't that have been so much better than Jesus? Come here. We need to talk. And I'm going to do the talking. So much better. Psalm 86.11 says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I would submit to you, church family, this is a great verse to memorize. And then voice at the beginning of every day. Teach me, and I won't be torn between two ways. Your way and my way. What a prayer. And one that God is eager to answer, by the way. Ask questions. Don't make declarations. A third practical suggestion, be passionate, but be open to perhaps being wrong. Often we confuse passion with truth. We confuse sincerity with reality, emotional energy with what's really going on. And Peter does that here. He felt very, very strongly that Jesus had missed this one. His plan was wrong. Everything in Peter's life and everything in his personal experience and in the longing of his heart were were for something really, really good for Jesus. He had passion. But his passion had replaced the truth. And he was deceived. And that's what happens. Would that we might adopt that Old Testament approach that Job took after suffering losses and pain and hurt that you and I can scarcely imagine that he endured after encountering all kinds of things that didn't fit into Job's plan. It's very interesting. Job and God have a little conversation. And here's what we read in Job 40, verses 1 through 4. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. And then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. I'm nothing. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my my mouth. I'm not going to talk anymore. Peter would certainly have avoided the quicksand of verse 22 had he been able in this moment to, to do this. I have no answer, Lord. I'll say nothing. I'll put my hand over my mouth since I have passion, but I don't have understanding. Help me. Oh, what a very different text it would have been. 
When confronted, go with God's plan. That's smart. When confused by his plan, ask questions. Don't make declarations. Feel deeply, but know that those feelings can blur the truth for you. And then a fourth suggestion on your page. Admit that your definition of love may be very different from God's definition of love. I don't think any of us here would doubt for a moment that Peter believed that putting a stop to Jesus' talk about his four musts and dying and all of that was really the most loving thing that he thought he could do for Jesus. I mean, he really thinks that's the loving thing, to talk Jesus out of these, this, this moment. As we've said, Peter loved Jesus. And this love was determined to keep Jesus not only from death, but even talking about it was the loving thing to do. However, if Peter really understood love, if he understood God's kind of love, he would never have attempted to deter Jesus from the plan, from that accursed cross outside the city of Jerusalem. His version of love would have stopped salvation's plan. God's version of love was infinitely deep. It was immeasurably wide, and it had eternity in view, while Peter's version of love did not. Jesus' death would mean life for untold millions who needed a Savior to pay their sin debt that they could never pay. And that, that's really why Jesus will say on the night before the cross in John 15, 13, greater what? Love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends. This day in Caesarea Philippi, as Jesus shares plainly God's redemptive plan, he's loving the way God loves, sacrificially and personally. It must be this way, Jesus says. The next time our plans don't line up with God's plans, we would do well to ask, Lord, am I loving here in this moment the way that you love? Is my plan in harmony with your heart? Or am I serving a lesser purpose? Am I serving my own purpose? We all want to stay out of verse 22. Agreed? We agree. Right. And the chances of doing that are better if we remember that God's plans will often be different than our plans and that even our good intentions can't justify wrong responses. And then lastly, there on your page, a third truth comes out of verse 23, and that is that a true friend will always care more about my character than my comfort. A real friend will do that. Peter says... Jesus, over my dead body, are you going to go to Jerusalem, suffer unjustly, and be murdered? Verse 23. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance. Literally, the words are stumbling block to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Yikes. Wow. Did you just say that, Jesus? You just said that. As I mentioned, the strongest rebuke that is recorded in all of Scripture toward a follower of Jesus. Peter gets the distinction of that. He addresses Peter as Satan. Now, it's not that, that Peter becomes Satan or, or that he's in, been indwelt by Satan in this moment. But what it means is that he's voicing the plan of Satan. 
As one writer puts it, Peter could hardly have understood that by his attempt to turn Jesus from the cross, he was placing arrows in the bow of Satan to be shot at his beloved Savior. Well, that's a word picture. But that's what Peter was doing. And and Jesus just cuts Peter off mid-sentence and says, in effect, in verse 23, Stop! Don't you say another word, Peter. Not another word. Because by saying no to my plan and offering up another plan, that's as anti-God as anything that you could ever say. To tell me that my death is not necessary, that's what, that's what Satan told me in the, in the wilderness when he tempted me. That's the very thing that he wanted. He told me I could have the world without the cross. You're suggesting that sinners can be saved by another way. Well, they cannot. I must do this. And if you can't go with me, then get behind me. And Jesus pulls no punches. I mean, he kept the, the edge of his words razor sharp. It must have shaken Peter to his core, to the very soles of his feet, to hear his beloved Jesus speak to him in this way, with this kind of tone. Proverbs 27, verse 6 says this. The wounds of a friend can be trusted. Jesus was okay with wounding Peter in order to protect Peter, wasn't he? and, And really to do that because he loved Peter and cared more about his character than about his comfort in this moment. He told him exactly what he needed to know. Peter, your plan smells of Satan. My plan is the only one that matters. Go with me or get behind me. Today, when the plans we have don't seem to be working out, things aren't going the way that we envisioned, maybe we need to remember just how much we're loved. Just how much we're loved by our God. He went to the cross for us. In a season or in a circumstance, that we don't understand, he may really be trying to teach us something that we need to know. He needs to rework our plan so that it fits with his plan. There may be something that he wants to show us, something he wants us to understand. One thing is for absolute sure, though, church family, Jesus places our comfort right now way behind his desire to make sure that we are accurate reflections of him. That's what he cares about. He'll always care more about our character than our comfort. And the cool thing is that Peter gets it. He he really does get it. He'll one day understand that Jesus' plan and not his is the right plan. We know this is true because he's going to write a letter. The letter of 1 Peter that we're studying right now. And though we have not, in fact, we've gotten to the passage that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2 that reads like this, that lets us know Peter gets it. Check these words out. For to this you have been called because Christ also, what? Suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit in his mouth. When he was, what? Reviled. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, 
He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Did Peter get it? Oh, he got it. He got it. Peter gets it, even using some of the very same words that Jesus used in verse 21. God's plan, Jesus' plan will eventually be understood by Peter. But how much better for him if he could have just paused at verse 22 and simply said, my Lord Jesus, I can't see my way clear on this one. It makes makes no sense to me, but I trust You're my captain, and I'm not going out anywhere without you. You lead, I'll follow. May those be our words, church. Brothers and sisters, may those be our words. Amen? Let's pray together. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this feast this morning. These truths from your word, they just resound in the deepest part of our heart. We know that they are true. We so thank you for this moment in your word. Thank you. May these words protect us from stepping into the quicksand that Peter stepped into on this day in Matthew. Lord, each of us have plans right now. Every one of us in this room, we have thoughts about what our, our present and our future look like. You may have other plans for us. And there could be hurt and pain and loss and sorrow and a lot of stuff there that we would never choose. But you've got the best plan. Oh, help us to be always ready to give up our plan for your plan. It's the best one. How we thank you for loving us so much. We thank you in Jesus' strong name. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Let's stand.